welcome to Back from the Abyss. I'm Dr. Craig Heacock. I just finished listening to a really beautiful series on the podcast, The Nocturnus. It's a uh, eight or ten part series on shame and medicine, and there was one episode called The Unwell Doctor, which I was really moved by, and I'm going to link to that in the show notes, because I think Back from the Abyss listeners might find it really powerful. Well, today's episode is a recent interview I did with Dr. Jeremy Sharp on his podcast, The Testing Psychologist. And I thought it would be of interest to Back from the Abyss listeners, so Chris and I did a little editing and added some music, and voila, here we go. Craig, welcome back to The Testing Psychologist podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks, Jeremy. Yes, yes, I'm glad to be here with you. Our last episode on substance-induced psychosis talking specifically about THC, super popular and super important in the mental health landscape these days. But we're going to dive into uh, psychedelic-assisted treatment, which is also huge right now and more on the helpful side than the hurtful side, I suppose. So grateful to have you, and I'm excited to, to dive in. Yeah, me too. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. We're going to dive into specific treatments, right? We're going to do psilocybin, ketamine, and MDMA during the podcast. But I want to ask a broad question since since you're bringing it up here at the beginning. Uh, I immediately think, okay, how is this, how do we separate the the healing or the journey that happens with these interventions from either placebo effect or some kind of um, um, memory placement, you know, like that we're sort of unduly influencing clients to remember things that may or may not be there. That seems like that's a, a really fine line to walk with some of this treatment. Is, am I off on that? What, no, what would you say? You're right on. You know, we know from the placebo research that active placebos, um, placebos that cause side effects are more powerful. And mm-hmm. we know that placebos that have strong side effects are even more powerful. Sure. So surely the placebo effect plays a role you know, in some uh, aspects of psychedelic therapy, but that's not bad. You know, we, we learned in my residency, we, we had a, a number of seminars about utilizing, harnessing the placebo effect to help mm. people because it it's a thing. Mm-hmm. But I, that said, there are abundant examples of psychedelics being used, even open label, you know, without a placebo group where the pl- surely the placebo effect is not uh, evident. So perfect example would be obsessive compulsive disorder. There's essentially no placebo effect with OCD. There's a strong placebo effect with depression and anxiety with OCD. No placebos do nothing, which I think is really interesting. Suggests that OCD is a very hardwired, um, kind of deeply ingrained sort of illness, which makes sense because it's so chronic usually mm-hmm. starts so early. You know, when you give people high-ish doses of psilocybin for treatment-resistant OCD, they often go into partial or full remission for many weeks or months. And that's open label. That's not a placebo-controlled group. So, um, And again, placebo, the placebo response in OCD is essentially zero. Sure, sure. Yeah. That's a great example. Okay. Yeah. You know, it is true that um, we could imagine that a more powerful or even difficult psychedelic therapy experience could be perceived as more effective. Mm-hmm. There's someone coming out like, wow, that was really hard. Um, and then that could foster more healing just out, out of the placebo effect. But again, I don't think we need to talk about the placebo effect in a pejorative way. It actually, 
can be helpful. And, you know, the more that we understand it and harness it, it's just another way to help people. Mm. I appreciate that perspective. Yeah, it's easy to throw it out as uh, that didn't work or it's just the placebo, but you have a great point. Let's transition to some specific treatments. We've got, like you called it before we started recording, the big three of psychedelic um, psychedelic treatments these days. There's a lot of research being put into each of these interventions, and I'd love to tackle each of them. So let's see. Let's start with uh, ketamine. Let's start there. That seems to be the one that is uh, most approved. There's probably a better term for that, but it's in well, you know, wide yeah, use most right abundant. now. Yeah, most it's, abundant. Most abundant. It's been FDA approved for anesthesia for 50 years. Sure, sure. Okay. So yeah, let's start with ketamine. Um, I would love to talk first just about the uh, the neurochemistry involved there, like what's happening when someone takes ketamine, and we can go from there as far as how it's helpful and yeah. so forth. Ketamine is a really interesting molecule because unlike, say, psilocybin or MDMA, which have multiple effects in the brain, but those are pretty easily characterized. Ketamine has a bunch of different effects in the brain. So it works on the NMDA glutamate receptor. It seems to work on um, opioid receptors. It's in, it seems to have um, some sort of effect on deep sleep cycles. It... Uh, is involved in neurogenesis and neuroplasticity. So, and it also is very dose dependent. So as you go up on ketamine, different chemical systems take precedence. So ketamine is a very different substance at different dose ranges. Mm. You know, there's kind of, one way to think about ketamine is sort of the three steps of ketamine. Like the lowest step would be the psycholytic ketamine, which is opening up the psyche. The medium doses would be psychedelic ketamine and then the top rung would be the top step would be anesthetic ketamine okay so uh so ketamine we've well characterized it because it's been around for decades but you know you the effects that you're getting therapeutically vary a lot depending on where you are dose wise and and in the context yeah can you give a just a brief history of ketamine and it's uh uh, sort of metamorphosis from my understanding anyway, you know, use as a, as an anesthetic to now uh, treatment for mental health concerns. Can you walk mm -hmm. us through that real quick? You know, like so many things in medicine, the, uh, we often see a medication approved for one purpose and then used <laughs> widely for something else. So for decades it was used primarily in general anesthesia, but in the nineties there started to be some, folks, especially on the West Coast, and, and I believe in New Zealand, who were experimenting with using it for depression, because um, docs were hearing some of their patients come in and say, hey, you know, I did recreational ketamine, it really helped my mood. So there were some enterprising docs that on the DL were, were using ketamine, and often with pretty good success. But it wasn't until the aughts, the early mid-aughts, that it, the research community really started publishing on it. And there were, I believe that the seminal study, I think it was 06 or 08, there was a study that really rocked the psychiatric world that where they gave IV ketamine to suicidal patients in an ER. And a very 
significant percentage of them reported no suicidality after six to 12 hours. Okay. So that got people's interest. Mm-hmm. But then it was really another decade, 2017, 2018, until things really started taking off with, with ketamine. And ketamine, I think, and this is often true in medicine, ketamine has really been, use has really been driven by the clinicians, not by the researchers. So I think a lot of the depression research questions are still not known. But clinicians all over the country have taken over because once a medication is FDA approved, for one thing, you can use it for other things. And so, and we're seeing, I think, uses of ketamine are are outpacing what the research shows. But that said, you know, ketamine is arguably the best depression med to come along since, I would say, since Lamictal in 1994. So, okay. It's a strong statement. Yeah. 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 So it's, walk us through just a little bit how, what is actually happening? How, so at maybe at each of those different doses, however you might want to characterize it, like what is happening and how is ketamine working for some of these concerns? Yeah. Well, maybe we'll talk about depression first, because I think it's doing sure. different things for trauma. Yes. Yes. So, and again, it's hard to talk about depression. I mean, we're talking about depression like it's a thing, but depression is a <laughs> syndrome. And again, you know, we could be talking bipolar depression, trauma-driven depression, you know, existential depression. But again, let's talk about people who show up and are, you know, have vegetative symptoms of depression or are doing very poorly and haven't responded to other treatments. It appears that ketamine is doing a number of things. So number one, ketamine is improving sleep quality. So... Um, most everyone with a mood disorder has sleep disturbance. In fact, mm-hmm. I and many other people argue that you can't have a mood disorder without sleep disturbance. Ketamine is definitely um, doing something with the glutamate system. That the glutamate is the is the main activating neurotransmitter of the brain, and very few of our depression meds work on glutamate. Uh, Lamictal does, interestingly, lamotrigine, mm. but ketamine is working on that system. Ketamine is promoting new brain cell growth. Ketamine is doing something with the uh, opioid receptors. And I, I think what it's doing is it's repotentiating them. Very interesting finding that if, you, if you're on an opioid, whether that's you know, a full-strength opioid like oxycodone or whether you're on a partial agonist opioid like buprenorphine, suboxone, and you do ketamine, like a significant dose of psychedelic IV or IM ketamine, the next day when you take your opioid, you'll get high from it in a way that you didn't before. And mm. I've seen that in my practice. And so it's pretty clear to me that one of the short-term powerful effects of ketamine is that it's, it's repotentiating opioid receptors. And if you think, what, what do the endogenous opioid receptors do? They're involved in feeling safe and warm and protected and like everything's okay. And that's one of the things people often report after ketamine is they feel like things are going to be okay. Like the sense of overwhelm is dialed way down. Whatever is weighing people down and overwhelming them is is much abated, and I'm wondering if that's actually directly related to potentiating opioid receptors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and and there was a study that came out of Stanford a few years ago where they gave people opioid blockers and then gave them IV ketamine, and they didn't get nearly as good antidepressant response. So they still got some, but not as powerful. So I, I'm not saying that that the endogenous opioid receptors are all of it, but they're definitely part of it. In fact, one of the contraindications for IV or IM suboxone for depression is probably being on an opioid or suboxone because you just, you can't really, um, 
retool those, repotentiate those receptors like you would if you weren't on an opioid. And I've seen that in my practice that people who are on opioids or suboxone, they just don't get that much antidepressant benefit from, uh, from ketamine. That's interesting. Yeah. So we started with depression. Can we talk about trauma a little bit then? Like what, what do you feel like is happening on the trauma side when someone takes ketamine? Yeah. Well, I think we could talk about sort of brain effects and then psychospiritual effects. So let's talk brain effects. So I think the biggest one would come back to what I was just talking about is that, you know, people with post-traumatic stress disorder have derangements of their endorphin system. They, and the endorphins, again, are to help us feel safe and protected and, um, you know, soothed and calmed. That's what endorphins do. Mm-hmm. Particularly people with early childhood abuse tend to have really major derangements in the endorphin system. So I think one of the things ketamine is doing is, is rebooting the endorphin system and giving people a sense of, kind of calm and peace. Mm. But there's, there's something more than that. And I think this is where it's hard to talk about this in ways that I think people who are trained in, you know, allopathic Western psychiatry or even psychology can get a handle on. But but that is that ketamine, like these other substances, is working in the psychospiritual realm. And let me just give an example of that. I um, had a really scary thing happen last year where my dog turned on me and attacked me. And it was, it was horrifying. Hmm. I wasn't physically wounded, but I was definitely traumatized and psychospiritually wounded. And I did an IV ketamine treatment that was a total game changer. And and part of this treatment, my dog was attacking me through the treatment, but I could tell it was weird. Like there was, I had enough awareness to realize, oh yeah, this needs to happen. Like I need to have my dog kind of attack me in this weird floaty ketamine way. And it wasn't scary. It was, it was interesting. It was like, it was just calm and kind of devoid of emotion it was i was watching my dog's face just lunge out at me and bite me but i thought oh this is the processing this is this is me going through this dog attack trauma that's just that's haunting me because i think that's the way i think of trauma traumas are haunting and with that one treatment it was done i um i felt at peace again because before that i was just in 24 7 fight flight Right, right. And I think, you know, you talk to other people who do ketamine or some of the other psychedelics and they'll describe, you know, they'll describe positive effects consistent with brain effects, like less overwhelm, more energy, less suicidal ideation, for example, or improved mood. But but then again, if there's trauma involved, you often will hear people describe like they feel less haunted or um, like the this sense of doom and dread has just been dialed way down for a while. Sure. Sure. See, when you, when I hear you describe that, uh, that experience, it makes me think I'm such a concrete person, much to my wife's chagrin. Sometimes she dwells in this, uh, psycho spiritual realm a lot more than I do, I think. But I think about, um, the engagement of 
the executive system, right? In the frontal lobe. And I'm like, what is happening there that as you know, sort of brings the the processy part of our brain online and the meaning, the 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 rational part of the brain online a little bit more and detaching from the the emotional component, right? And uh, so uh, again, I just come back to the the sort of the neurochemistry involved there, and what is happening that you're that we're talking about as a psycho spiritual experience, right? Mm-hmm. There's something happening. There, There's something right? happening, and I think I've experienced this in in my therapy, and also hear this a lot from patients. Is and I saw this in my work on the Maps MDMA study. Is that these kind of psychedelic sessions, like they don't go the way you think they're going to go. Mm. Patients are like, well, this is my intention, this is what I want to do, or the therapists are thinking like, hmm, maybe we should go here. No, I think what you're really doing is you're trying to set up a container and a safe place for the unfolding. And the unfolding, it's often the kind of thing that you look in hindsight and you say, oh yeah, that makes total sense that it unfolded that way, but it's not necessarily something you would have ever predicted or planned. Mm-hmm. And I think psychedelics have a way of doing that, that of going down into your unconscious and, you know, possibly a broader psycho-spiritual realm or collective unconscious or however you want to imagine that and and taking you to places that you never could have mapped out before with your conscious rational mind. Uh, Certainly the way that I hear people describe it, right, who've experienced these things. And that's a, I think that's a nice segue actually to work backward a little bit. And I would love to have you talk about the, uh, setting for ketamine treatment. Um, I know just from talking to you and others that there are several different ways to administer ketamine. You do a lot of IV or intramuscular, right? Where you're injecting it. Um, and there are also just oral, uh, administration methods. So can you walk us through what it actually looks like for someone to do a ketamine treatment? Yeah. So again, going back to this idea of three levels of ketamine. Again, the, the bottom rung, <clears throat> excuse me, the bottom rung would be lower dose, um, often oral psycholytic ketamine, opening up the psyche. The middle step, the middle dose would be psychedelic ketamine, and the upper step, the highest dose would be anesthetic dose. So in psychiatry, people are doing the lower medium dose. So usually, it looks like this: either a lower dose. Um, psycholytic ketamine, oral, typically oral lozenges. Um, And that's typically done with a therapist in the room. So for example, the patient or client might do 100 or 200 milligrams of oral ketamine uh, and then would do a two-hour talk therapy session or somatic therapy session, trauma therapy session with a therapist in the room. Now, more and more people are doing these by telehealth, and there's been a lot written about that. Mm-hmm. And New York Times had a big expose of that last week. Yes. Where people are taking lozenges at home and then logging on and doing quote unquote therapy on their laptop while they're on ketamine. What do you think about that? I think that's, I mean, I could see if you live in the Yukon, you know, you live in rural Alabama, you know, you live someplace where there's just not any mental health care. Sure. I think that's a fine option. But if you live in Denver or Des Moines or San Diego, like I think if you're doing that, you're getting a, a very sad, distant, not even a second, a distant fifth to what you could get from in-person therapy. Because again, so many people that are doing psychedelic therapy have interpersonal wounding, you know, that there's a lot of kinds of trauma, but arguably the worst trauma is when people hurt people. Mm-hmm. That's the most damaging. 
And that's the kind of trauma that having a therapist with you in the room working with you, I think is the most healing. Not that, you know, not that it can't be some healing off a screen, but it's just, that's not the way we're wired. You know, we're wired to read each other's energy and, and micro expressions. And um, I think you just lose a lot. Sure. It's just, it's just not nearly as good a therapy. Sure. And my wife has said too, you know, my wife's a, a ketamine assisted therapist. Uh, I think listeners probably know that has said that even bearing witness to someone's experience, uh, even without as much structured treatment per se, uh, or intervention has been really powerful just to have, you know, she says that her clients get a lot of benefit, even from just being with someone through this experience and then doing some processing, of course. And, yeah. um, but just having someone sort of be there with you as you go on this journey. Yeah. I've, I've had patients tell me they could never quote unquote do therapy. They could never mm-hmm. open up. They could never trust their therapist. They could never feel comfortable. And then they did, you know, the low dose, like oral ketamine, psycholytic therapy, oftentimes with therapists, just as witness, mm-hmm. just, just as, you know, partner container holder. And, they were able to feel a sense of safety and then move into psychotherapy, somatic therapy in a way they never did before. Yes. So I totally agree. Sometimes what you just need is someone there with you. Yeah. yeah. So, so the lower dose, often oral psycholytic ketamine, that has a lot of uses that can be helpful. One, just to help people enter therapy. Cause you know, sometimes it takes people weeks or many months to feel comfortable with their therapist. You can imagine that that psycholytic Oral ketamine could help people feel closer to their therapist and, you know, speed up the therapeutic relationship. Mm-hmm. It can help people access, that's the psycholytic opening the psyche, open, open up things in their unconscious that they have had only partial or no access to. Mm-hmm. It can help a lot with cracking open dissociation because a lot of people live in kind of parasympathetic numbing after trauma and ketamine can help open that up. Mm-hmm. And even the low doses of ketamine are helpful for different subtypes of depression. So someone who's depressed in therapy, but not able to engage as much emotionally or cognitively because of depression, the, the, the lower dose lozenge therapy can help people with that. Yeah. Yeah. And what's this experience like at this dose? Uh, you know, or uh, my, <laughs> so my experiences of ketamine come from college where I, experimented with a lot of substances, not ketamine, but I had friends that were in the K hole a lot, so to speak. And so I have those reports and now fast forward 20 years or whatever. And my wife is telling me and other therapists are telling me about, you know, these ketamine assisted therapy experiences where folks are having some opening and revelation and so forth. But I'm curious, like subjectively, how would you describe the patient experience at this low dose? I would say low dose ketamine, um, non psychedelic ketamine. So K hole by definition, that's psychedelic ketamine. Sure, that, that's that's sure. the mid level or higher. It yeah. could, could be anesthesia. <laughs> low dose ketamine, actually, the experience of it is similar to alcohol, but maybe with more warmth, more somatic involvement, more more connectedness. I think alcohol is sort of disconnecting, and mm. and I think ketamine is more. So I think it has a warmer connected quality to it in the, in the psycholytic lower doses, which tra- changes drastically once you get to the next level, the psychedelic level.
you know, when I'm thinking about what type of ketamine therapy, I'm, I'm first thinking, are you like a cap, you know, ketamine assisted psychotherapy, psycholytic low dose kind of person and, or, cause it could be both. You are a higher dose K hole psychedelic IV or IM person. And maybe the biggest distinction is actually one way to think about this is like so many things in psychiatry. If, if someone's having mild and moderate symptoms of whatever, ADD, depression, anxiety, there's a lot of different things you can do. If someone's having moderate to severe symptoms, that narrows the treatment option. So when I have someone in my office with, you know, moderately severe to severe depressive symptoms, I'm not going to recommend low-dose ketamine. I'm going to say, we need to go deep. We need to go IVIM. We need to get you feeling better. And then, you know, maybe do ketamine-assisted psychotherapy after that. But again, I'm equating CAP with low-dose oral ketamine. That's fair. Because can you do ketamine-assisted psychotherapy with high-dose, or the, you know, the medium dose psychedelic ketamine? Yes, kind of, but it tends to be such a discombobulating experience that a lot of people come out of it and are fairly speechless. I think actually the the therapy that's most useful after these you know, medium dose psychedelic experiences is more the day after or two or three days after. Because a lot of times people are much more resourced, they're much calmer, their overwhelms dial down, and then they can really go deeper into EMDR or somatic work or psychotherapy. Whereas the CAP work, the lower dose, they're actually doing that while people are under the influence, lower dose ketamine. So that that's a real distinction, I think, that therapy, if you will, it, the timing of it's very different with the low dose versus the medium psychedelic dose. That makes sense. Yeah. Yes. And so when you describe a psychedelic experience with ketamine, um, I think for a lot of folks out there, if you're not uh, sort of steeped in this research and in this world, that can sound kind of crazy, right? <laughs> like, what are we doing uh, putting people into psychedelic states? And um, how is that even helpful uh, for mental health concerns? And so uh, I'm curious from your perspective, right? Psychiatry, you do a lot of this IV, IM, kind of mm-hmm. higher dose ketamine. What is... Yeah. Uh, uh, what's the benefit? What's the, um, the client experience like that is so helpful in those cases? Yeah. I would say with psychedelic ketamine, um, the experience may or may not be part of what's helpful. We'll mm-hmm. talk about that in a minute. Mm-hmm. It's, um, I think with the lower cap kind of oral sessions, the, the experience is huge. I mean, you're trying to catalyze an experience. I think with the with the psychedelic doses, sometimes people come out and have pull up something really powerful, and other times people just come up and just like, whoa, whoa what was that? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I should clarify too, and I've talked about this a lot on my podcast that IV and IM is not synonymous with psychedelic ketamine. So mm. much of the ketamine in America is done IV what I would consider low dose, like 0. 0.5, 0. 0.6, 0. 0.65 milligram per kilogram, which is not a psychedelic dose. Okay. It's kind of a weird and warm and interesting dose, but it's, you know, you're not going to reach what we call full dissociation until you get significantly higher than that, like 0. 0.85, 0. 0.9 milligram per kilogram. And that's where people in those kind of psychedelic treatments, people, as we say, lose the room, they lose their body. They lose the knowledge that they're in a room getting ketamine you know. Right. And those, we don't yet have good dose response studies on ketamine, but many of us who do this work are pretty convinced that the higher fully dissociative, fully dissociative deeper doses of ketamine are more effective. Mm-hmm. 
So those, I'll speak to those. Those sessions are very powerful. Um, They can be, they're unbelievably bizarre. They are often, at least have parts of them that are scary. Okay. Uh, And again, sometimes stuff, if you will, comes up during those sessions that provides people insights or comfort or something to work on in therapy. And other times it's just like people got... You know, shot to the center of the earth and spun around on a centrifuge and squashed between magma chambers and then extruded back up to the surface and and that's their treatment. <laughs> then, but then the next day, you know, they're texting me saying, "Man, I don't want to die anymore. I I feel good." Or, "Gosh, I felt like there was a ten thousand foot weight on my shoulders and it's gone." Yeah. And so, as a, from your per- perspective as a psychiatrist in that situation, I mean, are the uh, are the patients talking to you? Are you intervening so to speak or uh, i'm just curious about the that, what this actually yeah. looks like if there was a fly on the wall so again i think we have to sort of bifurcate this that with iv im ketamine it really matters the dose so a lot of places in the u.s are using subdissociative uh, and a subdissociative treatment you could potentially talk or take instructions from the therapist or ask questions but with what i'm doing um no there's no talking Gotcha. You know, maybe the first few minutes people might say a little bit, but no, they're going, you know, as I tell people, like, we're going to um, do a full baptism in the River K, like you're going under. Yeah. And I'll say to people, you know, you're going to, you're going down the River K and you're going to go through the class four rapids. We're going to catch you at the other end. You're going to be safe. It's going to be a wild ride. You know, tuck that in your mind that you're safe. We got you, but yeah. just get ready, get, you know, put your seatbelt on, put your feet downstream because... It's going to be a wild ride. Here we go. Yeah. Yeah. How long does it last? Well, we're still trying to figure out what the ideal ketamine psychedelic dose experience is, but typically most places drip in an IV over 35, 45 minutes. And I would say, you know, you're deeply in the experience for 45 minutes or so. Okay. Fair enough. So speaking of the, you know, going through the rapids, it's going to be safe, et cetera. I imagine there are some folks for whom this may not be appropriate. Is that accurate or, uh, or no? Yeah. So I think we have some, we have a number of, if you will, sort of cautions or contraindications with ketamine. Yeah. So ketamine really has two main side effects at a, if you will, a psychedelic dose. One is that it can make you very motion sick. And okay. So anybody with significant motion sickness is going to need a scopolamine patch, a motion sickness patch. And also ketamine can really raise your blood pressure, especially if you're a male over 50 or if you have pre-existing hypertension. So, you know, we'll have people double up on their blood pressure meds or we'll pre-dose people with blood pressure medicine and we monitor blood pressure during it. Mm. So those aren't contraindications. Those are just cautions. You know, if you have motion sickness or hypertension, if you're a male over 50, if you have a history of psychosis, that's not necessarily a contraindication. It depends where your psychosis came from. If you have psychosis from schizophrenia, yes, contraindication. But if you had psychosis from, say, schizoaffective bipolar 1, which again, schizoaffective bipolar or schizoaffective disorder bipolar type is probably a bipolar 1 variant. That's more and more what people think. And ketamine is a great bipolar treatment. So if people have had psychosis out of a bipolar type illness or schizoaffective illness, that's not a contraindication. If people really struggle with depersonalization, derealization, ketamine is, is a relative contraindication because ketamine 
definitely depersonalizes you and and puts you into a state of derealization. So those, I think more often than not, when we see people in sort of chronic depersonalization, those are people that are using a lot of THC. Okay. And again, I would argue if you're using a lot of THC, you're just not likely to get a lot of antidepressant or anti-trauma benefit from ketamine because the THC is so activating and destabilizing for those illnesses. Um, interesting, an interesting contraindication, I've seen this go very badly. Borderline personality disorder and ketamine is not a good mix. Okay. Um, it actually can make suicidality and self-harm urges way worse. And when I first observed this a few years ago, I thought that that doesn't make sense. But I've seen this now a number of times and talked to other people. So that is a contraindication. Okay. That's a, that's surprising given the link between trauma and borderline and the effect of, you know, the effectiveness of ketamine to work with trauma. Do you have any idea why that's happening? I'm guessing that might be because one of the core features of borderline personality disorder is a lack of an integrated self. And so people with borderline personality disorder just don't know who they are. Like they have these sort of porous uh, poorly differentiated selves and ketamine, especially at psychedelic doses totally dissolves you. I mean, you become part of the cosmic slop. And <laughs> so I'm imagining that, and I've had a couple of patients describe this to me as they sort of reconstitute and their body and psyche comes back together as they're coming out of ketamine that I think most people just feel a deep sense of relief. Like, Oh, I made it. <laughs> I'm a person again with toes and fingers. Right. And I think some folks with borderline personality disorder, when they're reconstituted, they're back feeling how awful they feel in their sort of, not selfless, but sort of confused, undifferentiated selves. And it's it feels awful. Mm. And it's it's almost like a reminder how unhealthy their psyche is when it's sort of dissolved and put back together. So I think it can actually make people feel much, much worse. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, let's jump to to MDMA. I feel like there's that's maybe the next one on the rung as far as approval and mm-hmm. widespread use. So let's go this go through the same process. Let's start with the the neurochemistry behind it. What's happening with MDMA um, in our brains? Yeah. So MDMA is methylene dioxymethamphetamine. So it is. Uh, it's crystal meth <laughs> with, okay. with, with another little ring on it. So it is an amphetamine, um, which is important because amphetamines can be hard on the brain. And we can talk about that a little later. Mm-hmm. You know, ketamine in reasonable doses at reasonable fre- frequencies seems actually very good for the brain. Psilocybin seems good for the brain. MDMA in uh, high doses or too frequent doses is definitely not good for the brain. And that's probably at least due in part. It's, a, it's an amphetamine. I think it, MDMA is such a powerful example of the vast gulf between mind and brain. Because mm. we can say, okay, it works on serotonin receptors. It works on oxytocin. It um, turns up dopamine. And so we can look at how it affects different uh, receptor subtypes in the brain. 
and how it affects different hormone systems. And that's all interesting. But that is such a profoundly vast gulf from when you get to mind, like the actual experience of being on MDMA, the experience of working with someone who's working through trauma, working with a couple on MDMA. Because what MDMA is doing in the psyche, in the mind, if you will, is it's dialing down fear. You know, it's so many people that come to therapy, but specifically people with trauma, with a lot of psychiatric illness, um, or even just with a lot of activation in their marriage are filled with fear and anxiety. And MDMA, probably through uh, effects on the amygdala, it dials down fear. And through possibly oxytocin or other mechanisms, it dials up trust. So imagine a therapy where you can dial down fear and dial up trust, like two of the most important factors in working with somebody. You know, we have patients come in our office and if they don't trust us and or they're fearful, we've got a hard road ahead. And MDMA is something that you you can do months or years even of attachment, sort of trust therapy work with your patient or client with the substance. So, so you know, I think you could, we can think of psychedelics as non-specific amplifiers or, or um, modifiers, but MDMA is a huge amplifier of trust and a minimizer of fear. Sure. Yeah, it's so crucial. It's so crucial. We've, uh, being in this community, I think we have a lot of psychologists and therapists, friends, right, who are married and have taken MDMA and, uh, you know, down the path of sort of marriage counseling, like, you know, DIY marriage counseling. Mm -hmm. And without fail, I think every single one of our couple friends have come back and said, this was like a year of couples therapy in four hours for us. Well, before MDMA was made illegal in 85, it was used fairly extensively in kind of underground couples work. I I say underground, it wasn't illegal at that point, but it was sort of unknown. And so, again, now I think a lot of people who hear about MDMA think of it as a trauma treatment, which it, it's, it is a good trauma treatment, but it was originally used more in couples' work. Begin because it can, it can build connection, dial down fear, bring back trust, and I think help people see in their partner what they originally saw. Because you know, so many marriage and years and micro-traumas and big traumas can just put this sort of haze and cloud between you and your partner and you can't see clearly who they were why you chose them and i think mdma just like blows all that smoke and cobwebs away so you can actually reconnect with the person that you chose you know years or decades ago Mm, well said well said so you mentioned trauma that's in my understanding again sort of the majority of the research around mdma as an intervention as a psychotherapeutic intervention or psychiatric intervention is that accurate yeah and i think most people suspect that you know rick doblin's a smart guy i think when he was thinking and he's the head of maps thinking about how to get mdma to the people he realized that you know trying to get an indication for couples therapy is not going to happen But again, as I mentioned at the beginning of this podcast, arguably the biggest unspoken need in mental health is PTSD attachment, complex PTSD. And so to have a treatment that actually could move the needle on trauma would be a total game changer. And so that's why Rick and MAPS, I think, set their sights on PTSD years ago. And, And, you know, knowing that the not just the brain, but more particularly the mind qualities, the psyche qualities of MDMA would make it 
potentially you know groundbreaking treatment for trauma. Sure, sure. And you participated in some of those MAPS trials, the the studies, right? You were a practitioner. Yeah. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about that and what that what that looked like? Um, what you know, when you say PTSD, you know, what populations you're working with, what it's maybe most effective for, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's so many interesting aspects of that question. One thing, if I might just comment on this, on the diagnosis of PTSD, I think one thing that became clear to me and to our study site here in Fort Collins, <clears throat> excuse me, is that uh, there's, P, there's two very different types of PTSD. So there's PTSD that is from early childhood wounds, if you will. Complex PTSD, parent-child PTSD, you know, PTSD that started before age five, six. And then there's everything else. Mm-hmm. And it's seeming in the study that, you know, people who have, you know, a terrible rape trauma in adolescence or war trauma in their 20s, and assuming they didn't have significant early life trauma, those people were often getting, you know, home run cure with, with MDMA. Because okay. in the in the MAP study, there were three MDMA treatments, or placebo, plus a bunch of integration and preparation sessions. And then there's another group of people who are probably much more represented in that study population or in our clinical populations. These are people with zero to five trauma. Yes. And this is a whole different thing. And I think we're, it'll be interesting to see when the data is fully out, but at least at our site, it looked like people with more complex PTSD, zero to five trauma, definitely got benefit from MDMA, but MDMA, if when it's made legal, medicalized, hopefully in the next 18, 24 months, that that would probably be more of a intermittent ongoing treatment, maybe over years, like maybe somebody with zero to five significant complex PTSD is doing, you know, an MDMA assisted therapy session once or twice a year over 10 years or something, because those wounds are so deep. It really is a completely different beast than later life PTSD. And I think, again, such an example of how the DSM misses a lot just by putting symptom clusters or zero to five trauma is it's a whole different beast. Sure. Sure. Yeah. I know we could go down that, that path of, um, is how do we even define PTSD? I have, uh, some issues with that as well. And that doesn't really do a great job of capturing that complex PTSD yeah. at all. Um, yeah, I, that's, this is fascinating to me, you know, it's top of mind. I've been doing, uh, here recently, these evaluations with incarcerated individuals, um, to try to hook them up with community resources. And they all to a person have complex PTSD and, of all, you know, all forms, all forms that started very, very early. And it's, uh, it's very striking how little anyone really knows what to do for them. And to hear that there may be some options coming down the road is yeah, really helpful. Super helpful. Yeah. Yeah. So let's talk about the other indications. Are there other, uh, issues that we might address with MDMA aside from the, you know, from trauma and yeah. couples well, I, work. But maybe we could say a little bit more about trauma because there's a lot of different oh, kinds sure. of trauma, but I think MDMA's sweet spot is early attachment trauma and sexual trauma. Okay. Now, 
clearly many people have addressed those two issues with ayahuasca or ketamine or psilocybin or other psychedelics, not to suggest that MDMA is the only thing, but I think MDMA's ability to open the heart, to allow people to feel love. I mean, I've had people on my podcast describe that. I've heard that with the patients say they never really, they never experienced what love felt like until they had an MDMA experience with a caring, compassionate therapist. So I think that is a special sweet spot for people with these really deep attachment wounds. And you know, sexual trauma is arguably all kinds of trauma rolled together. And, uh, and I think we're going to see a lot of those people, again, who've been so hard to treat, get a lot of benefit and, and progress with MDMA. Yeah, yeah. That's very hopeful, again. Yeah. Yeah. Let's see. Are there other aspects of trauma that we may need to touch on or applications that you yeah. see as relevant? Well, I think, you know, I think of trauma, especially if you're quote-unquote PTSD. I think if, you, if you're haunted by your trauma, you have PTSD. I, I like the word haunted. But mm-hmm. there's another part of haunting, it's, and that's shame. And mm-hmm. I think so often not with earthquake trauma or hurricane trauma or something, but with interpersonal trauma, there's often so often shame that's all tied up with that fear and lack of trust. And again, I think all these, these psychedelic treatments have potential to address shame. I think MDMA might be uniquely qualified to help people go into shame and, if you will, work through it. Because you can't talk your way through shame. I mean, I've tried in my office, I'm sure <laughs> you've tried. You have to, it has to be experiential. You know, as Saj Razvi has said in my podcast, that, you know, all effective trauma therapies share that they're experiential. And so I think, and I saw that in the, in the MAP study, that people would go back to the scene of the crime, if you will, and rework it, redo it, and go through it in a non-shame-based way. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's so powerful. Yeah. And I think what we know, right, is an antidote to shame is bringing it out to the open and again, having somebody witness it and be there with you through it and provide some kind of reassurance, whatever that may look like, that you're not broken. Mm-hmm. You know, it's not you, right? Yeah. Yeah. That's super powerful. And like you said, the opening and the the trusting and the uh, bringing down the 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 fear uh, is incredibly conducive to that. makes sense. Yeah. We should talk even more than ketamine. I think we should talk about cautions and contraindications because in general, ketamine is pretty darn safe. I mean, there's there are few people I think that ketamine couldn't potentially be beneficial for. I think that's a much bigger group with with MDMA. So medically, you know, we have to look at anybody with cardiovascular issues because because uh, you know this is methylene dioxide, methamphetamine. It's very stimulating, so it can put. Uh, stress on the heart, on the vasculature, so anybody with significant cardiovascular risk, stroke risk, 
untreated hypertension, history of seizures. Uh, there's a bunch of medical issues which are potentially problematic with MDMA. Mm-hmm. And then, again, because MDMA is an amphetamine-based molecule, like Adderall or Vyvanse, um, amphetamine-based um, molecules can make mood and psychotic disorders worse. So even though MDMA is often a really powerful treatment for trauma, and even though trauma often causes or fuels depression, if you have, a, if you will, an endogenous kind of depression, like bipolar depression, MDMA could make that worse. If you have um, a psychotic or schizoaffective disorder, theoretically, MDMA could make that worse. So there are definitely a number of psychiatric diagnoses, if you will, that you would have to, you want to get a good evaluation before you do that. And then, but probably the biggest issue again of with MDMA versus ketamine, ketamine is, has almost no med interactions. I mentioned the opioids. That, that's a problem. It also interacts with lamotrigine, but MDMA has many, many medication interactions. And one of the tricky things that we saw in the MDMA study is that you know, we had to get people off essentially all their psych meds to be in the study. And getting people off psych meds is brutal, especially their sleep meds. Because if you have trauma, if you have complex PTSD, you probably have sleep problems. And yet a lot of, not all, but a number of sleep medicines have interactions with MDMA. And so this is, um, this is a big problem, mm-hmm. but one which I think actually we might find ketamine helpful for. So I wouldn't be surprised in the near future you know, if when MDMA gets medicalized, that when people are coming in to do MDMA sessions, they're tapering off some or many of their psych meds. And we're using ketamine, like IV or IM, a couple times before the MDMA to help them come off their meds, to make sure that they don't plunge into depression, to help with their sleep quality, to basically kind of buffer people and get them sort of uh, neurochemically ready for MDMA. That makes sense. Am I remembering back? I mean, this was a long time ago when I was trying to research this stuff, but is there some interaction between MDMA and tricyclic antidepressants as well? Or am I remembering something? Completely? No, that's true. Yeah. Cause MDMA works uh, on serotonin very, um, very aggressively. And so, mm. yeah, all the meds that work on serotonin and a bunch of other stimulants are contraindicated, mm. MAO inhibitors. Right, um, right. Yeah, some migraine meds are not good with, with MDMA. So they're just, they're a lot more medication and medical, a few cautions and contraindications with MDMA, which yeah. is, which is important to know. It's good to know that there are other options, you know, ketamine and psilocybin being kind of prototypical, very different, but also potentially helpful options. Sure, sure. Let me go back and um, double click on the cardiovascular concerns. Uh, this is a selfish question, but I get to do that because it's my podcast. So <laughs> you can do that. <laughs> yeah, my wife and I, you know, of course, have considered this, but I, you know, I have exercise-induced AFib, right, that's been diagnosed. And so uh, when you mention cardiovascular issues, what kind of things are we talking about there? Well, first of all, you know, the difference between a medicine and a poison is the dose. Of course. So the difference between 100 milligrams of MDMA and 300 is vastly different. So what, for example, the cardiovascular risk, you know, in general, the cardiovascular risk of MDMA, 100 milligrams, I think is pretty darn low. 
300 milligrams, quite high. So you can imagine that as we're trying to stratify people for MDMA treatment, it's not that cardiovascular problems or disease is a contraindication. It might be, hey, you want to, let's start you lower. You know, we'll definitely monitor blood pressure and heart rate and just see how you do. Um, and and then, again, this was Great. one of the problems that prohibition and black market MDMA is a problem because you don't know how many milligrams you're getting. You don't know how pure it is. You're just taking a guess. When it's medicalized, you know, we'll be able to actually know how much we're giving people and adjust that based on you know, medical right. comorbidities. Right. Which raises an important point. I think we should probably clarify and please correct me if I'm off base on this, that MDMA is not widely approved for intervention. Like you're not giving, you're not administering MDMA in your office Monday through Friday these days. It's still kind of housed in these um, clinical trials or is that? Yeah. So it's, it's being studied in clinical trials throughout the U S and it's also being used, you know, fairly extensively in the underground therapy community, sure. which is illegal. I mean, MDMA is a schedule one, uh, drug you know, along with heroin and LSD and, and interestingly, um, marijuana. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Um, so, but it's looking more and more likely that MDMA will get medical approval for PTSD treatment sometime in the next couple of years. Yeah. Cross our fingers. Sure. Sure. Let's see anything else before we transition to psilocybin. Maybe one other thing. You know, I mentioned with ketamine how one of the benefits of ketamine is it can help promote connection and an opening with therapist, which can be really valuable. You know, I, and I think many others would argue that MDMA does that times 50. So MDMA allows people to de often deeply and powerfully connect with their therapist. But that's led to some real problems with boundary crossings and boundary violations, especially sexual ones, which again could happen with ketamine therapy, could happen with psilocybin therapy, I think are much more likely to happen with MDMA therapy. So I think it's going to be interesting to see with the medicalization of MDMA, what will be common protocols? So will MDMA-assisted therapy sessions always be videotaped? Will we always insist on two therapists? Because the kinds of things that are catalyzed in that power of that sort of trusting, intimate crucible of MDMA with a therapist and a vulnerable patient, it's, it's potentially really devastating for both people. You can imagine either the patient-client could be harmed or there could be you know, untoward or even inaccurate accusations made against the therapist that could be devastating to a career. So we're going to need to come up with, with psychedelic therapies in general, but specifically I think with MDMA, with protocol to make sure those sessions stay safe for therapist and client patient. I appreciate you saying that. Yeah, that, that is a major concern. Yeah. On my side as well, that as we take people into these clearly altered states compared to a, a typical therapy session that's a that's got to be top of mind and how we're going to keep everyone yeah. protected yeah
I would love to transition to our last intervention, psilocybin. Let's start at the top. Yeah. What's happening in our brains with psilocybin? Wow. That's such a, such a big <laughs> That's question. A great response. I okay. think in much like my answer to MDMA, but I think even more vast, the, the gulf between mind and brain with psilocybin is so vast. Like you really have to talk about it in two different ways. Mm-hmm. So on a brain level, we know that serotonin, that it, psilocybin works on the serotonin 2A receptor and then intracellularly inside of those serotonin cells. It's causing changes which lead to new brain cell connections, it's leading to um, improved learning and different ways of thinking and resilience mechanisms in the brain seem to be dialed up with psilocybin. So there's some very interesting circuitry changes, if you will, brain changes with psilocybin. So there's that. But then there is what's happening in the mind, you know, in the psychospiritual realm. And I think maybe we could even divide it two different ways. Let's talk about eyes open psilocybin and eyes closed. (laughs) Sure. And I'm going to call eyes open psilocybin. I'm going to, because most people who are, I think, using psilocybin, many people are using it mindfully and, you know, quote unquote, recreationally, but also psychospiritually are using it often in nature and with their eyes open. And what psilocybin does is it reignites this sense of awe and wonder. I think it reconnects us with the natural world. It reminds us not just um, cognitively, but somatically, psychospiritually, that we are animals, we're alive, we're part of the great buzzing, churning life on this planet, that we are not boundary like we would think with our skin and scalp, but we are actually more expansive than that, that we are connected, energetic creatures, part of a greater anima, if you will. Mm. And that is a very, for many people, you know, who've taken mushrooms, you know, I think that's something that they can relate to. And that's something I think people seek who take, you know, if you will, eyes open mushrooms in nature is to be reminded of the awe and wonder and beauty and just the connection, because so often, I think, especially now in modern American life, we're so atomized and siloed and individualized that it can just feel like we're each these little molecules doing our own thing and just trying to advance our molecular life. And just and, and psilocybin can remind us, like, oh, no, we are part of something much bigger than that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I think, you know, people talk about classic psychedelics as being a religious or spiritual experience. That's what they're talking about, partially, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. It's very validating too. You know, I mentioned in college, I experimented with a lot of things. Psilocybin was one of them. I had many experiences back then. And that description of going back to sort of that childlike sense of wonder, like everything is new and amazing is one of the, the best parts of the experience and just yeah. getting that reset in a way. And then if we, go totally the other way. Let's go the eyes closed or eye mask or going inward. And just to clarify, just for anyone who might be wondering, we're we're literally talking about eyes open versus 
eyes closed or wearing a mask. This is not a metaphor for anything, though no. it could be. Um, yeah. But yeah. really, or, or a different way of thinking this is outward psilocybin, meaning mm-hmm. having a psilocybin experience where you're engaging with hopefully not just your room or a building, but engaging with nature. Yes, yes. Um, versus an inner experience. Yes. And they are completely different. Like, it's shockingly... It's just shockingly different to experience eyes open and eyes closed psilocybin. You know, when we're talking about psilocybin therapy, you know, we're typically talking about eyes closed, but not necessarily because, um, you know, we saw this with the MDMA study too, that there's something very valuable about going inside, you know, with the eye shader or eyes closed and working through stuff and material and then coming back out with eyes open or not, and then interacting with a therapist. So these, you know, it's not that you would have a psilocybin experience. It would just be one or the other, but psilocybin eyes closed slash eye shade is going into the wonder and darkness and churning of your unconscious. Right. And it takes you spiraling into the 20,000 leagues under depths of you and and really, like your iOS and your internal operating system, I think psilocybin takes you to the building blocks of you. Sure. Which is fascinating and can be uh, scary. It can be unsettling. But ultimately, I think in the right context, with the right preparation, integration, right therapist, it, it can be life-changing. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Now, the research with psilocybin thus far have has happened with a, a few different populations, right? There's been some research on end of life and um, I forget the other two all of a sudden or the other one. Yeah. There's been treatment resistant depression. Yeah. Which yeah. I'm always interested. Like when you have a study for treatment resistant depression, like how do you define that? Cause that's such a amorphous term, but yeah. I mean, if we could talk about yeah, psilocybin for end of life, I think what's going on there is you know, people feel so alone when they're dying and it's, yeah. uh, it feels like this annihilation. And what psilocybin can do is not just remind you in your mind, but remind you in your spirit and your body, like you are part of something bigger. Mm-hmm. Like mm-hmm. there is, there is this churning life cycle of fungi and people and lemurs and cats and trees and, and there's something about psilocybin, I think that can take you deep into that. You see it's okay. Like it's part, death is part of the cycle. It's okay. Yeah. It's not bad. It's just, it is. And I, so I think with these end of life psilocybin studies, I think that's going to be a really interesting use of it in the coming years is to help people kind of get out of this conception that they are just a solo boundary animal that's dying. It's going to be alone, but they are part of something much bigger that's timeless and and amazing. Right. It's like it's like giving someone a dose of wow. Yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, versus, great. versus like, oh shit, I'm gonna die soon. Right. Because right. like, you know, you can hold I think that's the dialectic that you're trying to work with in end of life therapy is you are gonna die soon and oh my gosh, you're part of this you're part of this amazing thing that is the self propagating um life zone that's wrapped around this fragile planet. And it's just, it's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think too, a lot of folks say this, I think that, you know, a lot of death anxiety is, is ego driven and to break that down, 
perhaps with some psilocybin goes a long way and lets us sort of expand outward from our own anxieties mm -hmm. and concerns and how important we individually are and how meaningful it is that we individually are going to die and to break that down is, can be really powerful. Now, and there's also been some research, I just remembered, with addiction, right? Like nicotine mm -hmm. dependence and things like that. Yeah, that's fascinating too. I mean, these different applications. But again, like you think of the addiction work, it seems like psilocybin might have brain effects, like mm. sort of, you will, neurotransmitter or second messenger effects in the brain that help people not use substances compulsively. But there's also brain, or sorry, mind psyche effects. Like one of the episodes of my podcast a woman talked about having a really powerful mushroom experience where the, the mushroom entities came to her and basically showed her what her life was going to look like as her alcoholism, alcoholism progressed and she was going to die of it. And she came out of that and never drank again. Mm. She had this psycho-spiritual experience of the, she called it the mushroom entities, showing her like, this is where you're going. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Which again it. is completely fascinating to me. Like, what is that? I mean, that... It's a great question. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's something bigger than us. I, I do think that psilocybin taps us into something that's, you know, I, I think sort of philosophically consciousness wise, I'm a panpsychist. You know what that is? Tell me. <laughs> Panpsychism is the idea that consciousness is fundamental. It's like matter. Like it can't be reduced to something else. Like we think, you know, the, the dualist, you know, physical view is that the consciousness comes from the brain. It's like a, it's a epiphenomenon or emergent property. Whereas the panpsychists would say, no, you can't reduce consciousness anymore. Like it's, it's ubiquitous and it's essential. And I really think that psilocybin dials us into that, into this sort of universal nature of that consciousness is fundamental and it's not just limited in our skulls. Right, right. Well, I think, yeah, that taps into the idea even that mushrooms or like fungi, right? There's so much around how interconnected they are and like this quote unquote consciousness of the, um, it's not a plant, but you know what I mean? Like, and how it's connected. Yeah. Yeah. I could see that. I could see that. And that also makes sense with the, um, bigger, you know, universal, feeling that you get when you take mushrooms, right? Being connected to everything. Everything has a consciousness. Everything's breathing. So this is the one I think out of the three that's probably the least uh, regulated or um, 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 delivered with uh, the most endorsement from the government. Maybe is a good way to put it. Would you agree with that? Like we don't really have a as much support. Yeah. Well, now in Colorado, post one twenty two proposition one twenty two, psilocybin is now decriminalized. Right. So you can grow it, possess it, trade it, gift it. And then here in the coming months, uh, state of Colorado is going to come up with regulations and rules where therapists and non-licensed therapists, presumably in Colorado, will be able to get certifications to work with psilocybin. Yes. 
So I think Colorado's going to become a laboratory for mm. what works with Sil7, what doesn't work. Yeah. It's, it's exciting. It's a little scary, but I'm, I'm really glad that we're going to be part of this. Sure, sure. Uh, I mean, one way to think about psilocybin, again, is to compare it with these other two kind of prototypes, MDMA and ketamine. And I think there are going to be a significant number of people here in the coming years who might be more interested in MDMA or we might think might be better MDMA candidates, but because of psych medications or medical issues that we'll find that psilocybin is actually a better choice because psilocybin can definitely take people to into doing really deep meaningful trauma work yes undoubtedly i would say it's a it's a little harder and wilder than it is with mdma because mdma has such like a warm blanket of safety love and protection as you go into trauma states that you know psilocybin doesn't have that as much but but again there's something i think and this sounds very woo woo but i believe this and a lot of other people do too that there's there's something very organic and of the earth with psilocybin. Like it feels like if it's like the the mycelium, if you will, kind of psycho spiritual mycelium of psilocybin get into us and reconnect us with our most essential nature right. in a way that you know amphetamine based MDMA or even you know ketamine doesn't do that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, some people would say that's because psilocybin's of the earth and you know the plant spirits. I mean or the fun, fungal spirits. I mean, who knows if that's what's going on, but there is something profoundly different about psilocybin. It, it's of the earth. It's, uh, it's calling us back to the earth. Yeah. 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 I mean, I appreciate the, the, the energy to try to articulate something that's kind of indelible. Like it's, it's very hard to describe and I get it. Like there are many reports out there of folks who kind of make a distinction between psilocybin as a more organic sort of natural experience versus MDMA or like LSD, for example, which feels a little more mechanical or, um, yeah, yeah. yeah. So I'm with you. It's like the AI version of psilocybin. There we go. Okay. Yeah, that's fair. That's fair. (laughs) So how are you seeing this? You know, we've got, uh, end of life, you know, anxiety, maybe some addiction, treatment-resistant depression. Are you seeing other clinical applications with psilocybin? Well, I think there's this whole group of people who have, you know, quote-unquote trauma. They have attachment stuff. They have parent-child stuff. They have they have psycho-spiritual wounding, and they're not getting better with standard meds or talk therapy. And, you know these people could potentially do well with MDMA therapy or psilocybin assisted therapy or ketamine. And I think we'll be doing a lot of guidance of people in the coming years that come in. Like I, I want to do, you know, psychedelic work, but I'm not sure. Mm-hmm. And for people who have, you know, interpersonal trauma, early childhood trauma, attachment trauma, I think we have all three of these to choose from. I think what we don't know is psilocybin yet is we don't know with psilocybin, how good it's going to be for, let's say bipolar depression. So ketamine is an incredible treatment, arguably maybe the best treatment there is for bipolar depression. But what about psilocybin? I mean, we know that psilocybin can help with existential depression and trauma, um, fueled depression and demoralization. But what about, if you will, kind of endogenous genetic, like bipolar depression? I, I think the jury's still out on that. It would be really cool if it did because, uh, you know, ketamine 
well, some people can build up a tolerance to ketamine. I've seen that in a few of my ketamine maintenance patients, but mm. uh, higher doses of ketamine are, can be pretty overwhelming in a way that I think psilocybin doesn't have to be. Okay. I think psilocybin is friendlier. I think it's, yeah, I think it's more, if you will, quote unquote, organic. I think it, it's more connecting. Mm-hmm. I think psychedelic doses of ketamine are a powerful treatment, but they're sort of disconnecting and discombobulating. And, you know, they kind of puts us through the cosmic cheese grater <laughs> versus like connecting us to spirit. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. What do the, the clinical interventions, um, sorry, I'll back up. What does an intervention setting actually look like with psilocybin? So we talked about, you know, with ketamine and MDMA, um, and the mask and so forth. But for those who are doing legit clinical mm-hmm. intervention with psilocybin, what's the setup look mm-hmm. like? And yeah, there's usually two, well, two ways to think of doing psilocybin work. And this is kind of like on the ayahuasca models that, you know, a lot of people are doing psilocybin work in a group. So maybe doing prep work individually with the facilitator or therapist, but then coming together to do a psilocybin group and then having some processing post-group and then maybe some integration, either group or individual afterwards. And the advantage of that is that you, well, not only is it cheaper potentially, but it allows, I mean, psilocybin is so connecting and it's so, it's so ritualistic and it's so tied in with music and drumming and earth and spirit. And so there are ways that the facilitator, therapist, shamans, if you will, can use the group experience, I think, to really magnify the power of the whole experience. The alternatively would be to do, for example, one-on-one work with psilocybin, where the therapist is doing preparatory work with the client patient and then doing one-on-one with them and then the integration. You know, that is probably better for people let's say people who have really profound sexual trauma, profound early childhood neglect or lack of safety and, you know, might be sort of destabilized in a group, but that need, makes sense. but really need that kind of womb of one-on-one work. Yeah. yeah. So, you know, a lot of ways I think it's like, is individual psychotherapy better or group psychotherapy better? I think it, the answer is it depends. Mm-hmm. And I think when we look at psilocybin work, um, I think, some people are really going to get a lot of benefit out of the group dynamic. Mm-hmm. And then other people will need to start one-on-one to, to establish a safe container. Yeah. Yeah. That's fair. That's fair. Speaking of, it depends. Dosage depends as well. Um, and I know there's a lot out there around microdosing psilocybin, right? And LSD, it's sort of AI cousin. Um, what do you know about the microdosing literature? And, mm-hmm. you know, there was a talk for, there's an article, what, a couple of years ago about like, could this, could microdosing psilocybin replace Lexapro, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. What's, where are you at with that? Well, microdosing is a very hard thing to study because talk about a placebo effect, you know, so the placebo effect with depression, and anxiety is very high, especially in, if you're genetically susceptible and a lot of times people who are microdosing are basically, you know, people with some mild to moderate symptoms, usually mm-hmm. not moderate to severe. And so you can imagine that expectation bias, um, other confounding factors and or placebo effects can make it very difficult to tease out a benefit from 
microdosing. So my understanding of the microdosing literature so far, which is not much literature, but that it hasn't been shown to beat placebo. But that also could be because, again, it's a small effect size. Right. But the more cynical me says, you know, micro, it's like, when does micro work? Like micro exercise or micro love or micro work or, you know, if something's like <laughs> dose matters. That's I mean, fair. Dose yeah. mat like it matters how much you run. It matters how much you give compliments or do push-ups or how much aspirin you take. So it just seems to me, why would it be that psilocybin, for example, would have some cool, unique quality when you microdose it versus macrodose it? It seems like it's probably like most other substances that it, it very well may have benefits in the microdosing range, but probably nothing like the benefits in the macrodosing range. Yeah, yeah, that's reasonable. Yeah. What about uh, contraindications for psilocybin? What do we know? Yeah, there aren't so many contraindications. I mean, psychiatrically, I would say schizophrenia would would be a contraindication. Um, there are a few psychiatric meds that have a strong psilocybin blocking effect. So anything that blocks the two A receptor, serotonin two excuse me, anything that blocks the serotonin two A receptor, and that's all the atypical antipsychotics like Abilify, Latuda, Seroquel, those all block psilocybin effect. So that's a little problematic because those atypical antipsychotics are commonly used for treatment-resistant depression. I think we're going to see a lot of people wanting to do psilocybin for treatment-resistant depression. So they're going to have to get off their atypicals. Um, SSRIs seem to necessitate higher doses of psilocybin. So if you're on Prozac, Paxil, Zoloft, Lexpro, you're probably going to need to take 30 to 50% more psilocybin to get the same effect. Um, you know, one of the big controversies right now with psilocybin work um, and MDMA work is what to do with people on SSRIs because SSRIs, uh, it's a process to get off those. Right. And you don't want to destabilize people right before their MDMA or their psilocybin session. So more and more, I think the protocol that we're often recommending is if people are going to do that, that they either stay on their SSRI or maybe they... Uh, get on a lower dose for a week or two before, but not get off. Um, because, it could, again, it can just be so destabilizing to 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 tape, even to do a slow taper for some people to, for, to try, try to get ready for their psychedelic therapy session. Sure. Yeah, you hear horror stories of getting off SSRIs. Yeah. Really bad. Okay. Okay. And for the most part, the stuff that I've seen is that uh, psilocybin is um, otherwise physiologically safe it's pretty safe you know yeah. it's not going to have a toxic right right yeah. it's non-toxic yeah the the ld50 is huge like right. we don't know what that is yeah. even it's like so a dump hard. truck of mushrooms right um, <laughs> you kill you. Yeah, yeah yeah and the cardiovascular effects and so forth like you don't have that uh, the same as you have with mdma or even maybe ketamine right it doesn't um i mean you definitely can have some unpleasant physiological effects if you're taking a bigger dose or it comes on quickly but mm-hmm. No, it does seem impressively safe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and even, and I talked about this on an episode a few months ago on the psychedelic and psychosis episode that uh, psilocybin can theoretically trigger psychosis, but not anything like THC. And what we're finding is that when people get psychotic on psilocybin, almost invariably it's because they're also using THC. Because okay. THC can crank up 
the power of psilocybin. But so even for people with a psychosis risk or history of psychosis, psilocybin seems way, way safer than THC. And I, I see this in my clinical practice. You know, I have people say with bipolar one or schizoaffective bipolar type, and they, they don't want to give up substances and they want to smoke weed. And I'll tell them like, look, please don't do substances. But if you're going to do anything, do psilocybin. Hmm. Don't smoke weed. Because THC is just so much more likely to trigger or re-trigger you know, really scary psychiatric symptoms. Yeah, yeah. Well, and like you said, we did an entire episode on THC-induced <laughs> psychosis. If anybody's interested in that, go check it out. It was episode 320, if I'm remembering right. That's a lot of episodes. <laughs> yeah, I'm still kind of amazed when I look wow. at those numbers. Yeah, yeah, they just a, keep adding that's up. That's amazing. There's a lot of testing stuff to talk about. And psychedelic stuff. Yeah. <laughs> no, I really appreciate you sitting down with me and diving into each of these three. I think, uh, you know, we're just going to see the popularity and the, the um, application skyrocket over the next, whatever, five years, two years, three years, even um, as these um, interventions get approved and distributed. Right. There's a lot of promise with a lot with each of these. So. Yeah. It's exciting times. It's exciting, right? To 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 be living through it. Yeah. I think I maybe it was remembering I don't know who knows if I'm remembering this right or not, but we were talking a couple of years ago and I think you said something back then of uh, you know, this this kind of wave of treatments is, you know, the biggest thing that's happened in psychiatry since Prozac or something like that. I'm yeah. maybe misquoting you. You can tell I mean me. there's been a bunch of meds come out over the last twenty years, but I mean, this has never been a more exciting time to be in psychiatry. Yeah. Right now, this is it. If you enjoyed this episode, please share it with friends or colleagues or others who might find meaning in it. It would also be great to leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform, and we will be back in two weeks. Mm-hmm.